The Crux of the Matter, Episode 67, 20 Years in the Ministry. Hello and welcome to The Crux of the Matter, the show by pastors for pastors. My name is Pastor Todd Peppercorn. And this is Professor Scott Stigmeyer. Hey, Scott. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Um, just a beautiful day here in Southern California. Yep. Yep. Good times uh, we've had, indeed. We've had lots of rain, but uh, it's not raining now. Yes, this is winter, which in California often means rain, not snow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so that's all right. What have you been? Uh, what have you been teaching lately? Well, in my um, intro to theology class, which is sometimes the classes are freshmen, but the two classes I have now are all transfer students. And so they're a little older. They're a couple years older, and they're also a little more cynical, I find, <laughs> because I, I think because, oh, you know, they've had a few college credits under their belt. But they're Obviously, great they know everything. Yeah, yeah. They're great kids, and not all of them are that way, but they're they're super good kids, and I enjoy teaching them. But what I'm uh, teaching right now is Christology, and we're talking about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And there really is nothing more fun for a pastor than to be able to stand and talk about Jesus in front of um, 25 college students, some of whom are really into it, some of whom are less into it. But right, um, right. That, yeah, I mean, I can't think of anything more joyful than being able to to hold forth on, on the gospel, you know, the, so I was talking about the, uh, the crucifixion yesterday. Okay. And I don't know if you've ever done this, but, uh, around 1987 or so, the journal for the American medical association wrote an article about the crucifixion of Jesus and where they look at it medically. And they said, this is what happens to the body when a person is crucified based on the gospels, based on other historical evidence. And right. anyway, it gives me lots of stuff to talk about. So I was talking about the crucifixion of Jesus specifically yesterday. Is that article available online somewhere, like through Atlas uh, or some other source? Do you know? I think I got it online. Um, so hmm. it, it has been. I can look. I, right. I have it. I have it as a PDF. I mean, Well, I between can, the two of us, let's try to uh, dig that up. And if nothing else, I can embed the, the PDF in our in our document as a direct link. Cause that sounds, I, I vaguely remember hearing about this, but if I've read it, it's been years and years. So. Well, and it is something that since we're in Lent, right. Um, that pastors might actually want to look at as a resource. I mean, it's, it's a met it's, it's from the, it's a very scientific article, right. but they, re- they read the gospel accounts, the passion narratives, and then they bring up other historical information that we have about crucifixion victims. Hmm. And they, and they, you know, they just describe how you die, what exactly occurred. What about when they pierced the, pierced Jesus's chest and why the blood and the water were separated? I mean, it it just gives medical explanation for all of that. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Well, cool. Yeah. Very interesting. So when you're doing this Christology stuff, do you do it kind of historically, systematically? You know, how do do you approach it? Well, I do a little of both. I mean, I, I, I talk about the history because I, I do go into the first. I just give them the life of Jesus. Okay. I don't assume they don't. I don't assume they know much. Some of them know a lot. I mean, it's a mixed bag. Some of the students are are definitely Christian and know their Bible and know the gospel story, but some of them don't know a lot of it, and they may not be Christian. And uh, so I first out, I just tell them the life of Jesus and explain his death and resurrection, and then I go and talk about the the two natures and then I talk about church history a little bit. We do 
the Council of Nicaea and Arianism and some of the, you know, the heretical teachings about Jesus and the ancient church and how those might be present still today. Hmm. And we do, um, you know, then a lot, I mean, some of it's just kind of basic like confirmation stuff. You know, right. I talked about the, you know, the state of humiliation and exaltation. Two natures of Christ. That's right. right. Prophet, right. priest, and king, yep. stuff like that. Interesting. Yep. Interesting. Yep. Well, I'm uh, continuing to... Uh, work my way through the book of Isaiah with my weekday Bible classes, uh, which has been a lot of fun and and very interesting. Um, a part of what a part of what I'm saying we're we're still in the very beginning. I'm in chapter five in one group, and chapter we just finished chapter two in another group. A part of what I'm what I'm seeing that Isaiah is describing is how as these people kind of continue to fall into idolatry you know they they worship the things that they have made the the idols made with human hands a part of what that means is that they are they're basically reduced to being beasts they lose their humanity and they lose their uh they lose their notion of a conscience of a soul mm. Um, I mean, Isaiah doesn't mention the, the word soul there, but but the the concept of actually loving the neighbor is a is a you know a hallmark of humanity, and obviously this is a part of the image of God. And uh, and it's it's just been fascinating to me how in looking at that that they kind of lose their in losing their conscience and losing their their identity as the people of God they lose their love for one another the love goes cold and they lose their their sense of what it means to be human mm. essentially and it doesn't take much of a much of a stretch there scott to start no. thinking hmm isn't that interesting <laughs> i kind of think we may be seeing that um I don't know. Have you ever have you ever seen this or or, or kind of read this in the prophets? Is this a is this a no. weird Todd thing? No, no, I don't think it's a weird Todd thing. But I, 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 you know, I confess I haven't studied the prophets that much in a while. Yeah. Um. I, I had a class in Isaiah, but it was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, the same is true for me. So it's been a long time since I've kind of mm -hmm. read Isaiah from a teaching preparation point of view. I would I mm -hmm. would say I'm working through a commentary by a a, a guy named Moynter M O Y N T E R. Um, it, it's been it's been good. It's been very interesting. But I keep seeing these things where their idolatry, their worshiping creation mm -hmm. instead of the Creator, leads to um, leads to their treating one another as animals. Survival of the fittest is. You know, is essentially treating one another as animals. Um, I, I, I don't know. I've, I've, mm -hmm. So I've been musing on that all all week. It's been quite it's been quite interesting along the way. Well, yeah, you know, I find that interesting. Um, so the idea of um, being disconnected from God doesn't make us more human. It makes us subhuman. It makes us or at least behave subhumanly. Right. Right. Hmm. Well, and. I mean, this is really going going far afield. But one of the books that I have ordered that I haven't gotten yet is this uh, book that everyone's talking about by Anthony Esselin called "Out of the Ashes." Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. uh, subtitles like "Rebuilding American Culture" or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, 
I've heard a couple of interviews with with Esalen, and this is this is a part of what he makes the argument for is that uh, is that having a, a having a culture means means that there has to be a moral center, there has to be a moral foundation, and that and that there's just zero evidence of any of any truly secular culture being able to maintain a moral center. It just doesn't it just doesn't exist historically. Um, so that's kind of one uh, one interesting thing. And and then here's your, here's your next far field. Uh, we haven't talked for a couple of weeks, so we got to get all this mm-hmm. stuff out, right? Um, mm-hmm. Michael Novak died last mm-hmm. week. Um, you might know him from first things he's written mm-hmm. uh oh what's the name of that book the spirit of democratic capitalism something something like that from the early 80s but uh but novak novak was the the one that tried to argue that capitalism only, first of all capitalism only works if there's a moral center Otherwise, you otherwise you end up with a variant of survival of the fittest and that capitalism, if it's coupled with um, with a moral center, namely uh, uh, Christianity as a source of as a source of virtue, um, that actually encourages and fosters philanthropy and and looking out for the neighbor, collaborative building, etc. Capitalism without a moral center, without without a faith or the faith, um, quickly degenerates. And uh, I mean, this is all kind Mm -hmm. of interconnected in a very strange way, at least in my head. Um, Yeah, no, I, I, you know, it's interesting. My son is an economics major, so I'm hmm. going to, I'm going to see if I can find that Michael Novak book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just uh, I just listened to an interview on uh, First Things with uh, uh, about Michael Novak. That was just uh, a, an interesting, an interesting little glimpse into kind of the uh, the seventies mm. and eighties and and what was going on in the in the political sphere, but also in the uh, cultural and religious sphere, and sort of how how these things interact in such weird ways. And and, and it does occur to me that. A part of why Christians often have a, at least sort of have this, what seems like an instinctive nervousness about capitalism almost. And again, that's kind of a, a sign of our, when we've grown up, uh, is because what we often experience today is capitalism devoid of any, of any Christianity or mm-hmm. devoid of any moral center. And mm-hmm. so you really do get survival of the fittest. No. Greed is good. Greed is good, right? So anyway, lots of uh, lots of things and places uh, places going around there. Yeah. But we have uh, an interesting topic for our for our dear listeners for this week. Before we get into that topic, I just want to mention you can find our show notes at thecruxofthematter.net slash podcast slash sixty seven. Uh, you can email us at feedback at the crux of the matter.net. And I hope that you will do uh, one or both, et cetera. We would love to hear from you. Uh, happy anniversary, Scott. Happy anniversary <laughs> to you, too. <laughs> you and I share a really uh, unusual anniversary mm-hmm. in at least in Lutheranism. You know, in yeah. Roman Catholic Church, when you're ordained, you're probably ordained with 10 or 20 or 50 guys or something. But in Lutheranism, 
ordination usually takes place at a standalone service where you're the one being ordained and that's it. And oftentimes it happens at your first call. So you're at yeah. your at your first call. But that was not the case with you and me, was it? No, we had a different a different scenario unfold. Um, it was at our first call. Yes, that's uh, true. Now that you mentioned that, yep. we uh, both Todd and I graduated from the seminary, and our first call was to the seminary where we graduated from in Fort Wayne, Indiana, uh, to uh, work in recruitment. And um, so we had a call there, and we were ordained there on the same day in the same service. Yep, same day, same service, but dif- by different people, though. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, my pastor, whose name was uh, Richard Radke at St. Paul's in Fort Wayne, ordained me, mm-hmm. and then your and your pastor ordained you. Yes, exactly, Peter Ledick. Peter Ledick, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. Messiah in Danville, California, just down the road mm-hmm. from me, not too far. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, that was a weird. That whole thing was weird, mm-hmm. frankly, because as I remember it, Scott, uh, we had been working for nearly six months at that point. Yeah. <laughs> and we started kind almost like graduate assistants, you know, and it was somewhere between half time and three quarters time. It definitely wasn't full time. And and the seminary didn't know whether they were going to call us or keep us as kind of graduate assistants or what was what was going to happen um, or if we were going to get calls to parishes in the nearby area, which, as I remember, it, that was 20 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. We both kind of wanted in some way or another. Um, but but it ended up that we were both uh, called and and ordained and that, you know, the half three quarter time thing just sort of went away and ended up being basically full time um, along the way. Do you remember anything of that ordination service? <laughs> Do I remember anything? Yeah, I, I mean, it's just I, funny. I, it's a long time ago. It, it is a long time ago. I, I remember it a bit. I mean, I remember being there, but do I remember much of the service? I actually don't, I must yeah. say. Yeah. I, what I remember is, uh, us singing, um, come Holy ghost, God and Lord. It was on the eve of St. Matthias day. So February 23rd. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was red, uh, uh, Dean Wenthe, who was the, the relatively new president at Concordia Theological Seminary, he preached, mm-hmm. uh, for it. And that, uh, and that the two of us were were ordained. What I remember, I, I mean, the one piece of the whole thing. I, I hate to say it, Scott. I don't remember the sermon. I'm sure it was wonderful, no, but right. I don't remember the sermon. No, no, I, I don't either. What I remember is David Scare. <laughs> <laughs> I rem- I remember the professors coming and laying their yep. hands on our heads. Yes, mm-hmm. and so the professors would all kind of line up, and there were a few other parish pastors there too. But yeah. the professors would all kind of line up. And then they would put their hands on, you know, either on our heads one at a time or occasionally um, one would put put each one hand on each of us. So it kind of felt like Jacob and Esau or something. Mm-hmm. I was waiting for someone to reverse their hands. Um, mm-hmm. But I remember David Scare coming up, putting his, you know, putting his hands uh, on on both of our heads. He was behind us <laughs> mm. and uh, and saying, you will be baptized with the bath baptism with which I am baptized. And then he nice. walks off. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and that's nice. all he said. 
<laughs> right. Well, you know, that's our custom is for the pastor who, you know, pastors to come and lay their hands on the heads of the ordinand and speak right. a word of scripture. Right. Right. Usually, usually a word of scripture. Sometimes I, I mean, I've heard and seen it done where, you know, there'd be a, a passage of scripture and then maybe a little exhortation or encouragement. Right. Or, right. or something else. I've occasionally mm-hmm. heard a, uh, a, a citation from the book of Concord. Right. Or something. The possibility for cheesiness there really knows no bounds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, it's usually pretty good. And, and yeah. in our case, I don't remember any cheese. But no, it was, there wasn't uh, any cheese that I remember either. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. Sometimes you'll find some smart aleck pastor that'll, you know, quote a scripture verse in Greek or something like that. Right. But um, yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember anybody being a smart aleck like that. But, no, uh, no. I do remember, though, that that one of our professors, because of his, uh, at least according to his own claim, um, because of his uh, his background, uh, gave us apostolic succession. Yes, I remember that, too. Right. I so. do, too. So he had been ordained. And when he was ordained, help me remember this, that there was uh, someone from the Church of Sweden. That, that like laid that. hands on him. Yeah. Yeah. Like <laughs> yeah so, so, so we have apostolic succession. Shoo. That was, uh, yeah. that was yeah. a close one. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. Of course, Lutherans believe in apostolic succession. We just think that it means that, you know, it's the doc, you know, you have the doctrine of the apostles. It's not right. necessarily an unbroken line from. Right. Right. You can't, it's not. It's not necessarily a genealogy of ordinations or something right, like that. Right, but uh, right. uh, although, again, there are strands of Lutheranism <laughs> that that take it much closer to that way, particularly, yeah. as I remember, at least the Church of Sweden, uh, the Scandinavian churches have always had a much higher view of apostolic secession uh, or have taken it in that much more genealogical way than mm-hmm. uh, than otherwise. Yeah, that was a and, and it was a weird thing because because we were called to the seminary. So we didn't we kind of had an altar, but mm-hmm. you know, it was sort of shared with 40 other people there that were ordained. And so it wasn't a congregational call, that's for sure. No. So so there was a lot of interesting conversation about what does it mean to be ordained and have a call to this place when mm-hmm. a lot, an awful lot of what you're doing isn't word and sacrament ministry. It's mm-hmm. administrative. It's, you know, other things. We always figured that recruiting and raising up future pastors is itself a pastoral act. Right. Well, I mean, it, as I and remember. So the, the church delegates a lot of that to right. And as I remember it, Scott, that was kind of the approach that that you and I took and tried to bring to the whole admission process was that this is a this is a theological task and a pastoral task. This is not Mm -hmm. just a a a sales pitch, as it nor is it just pushing paperwork when applicants come along and. Right. You know, because there's a there's a certain amount of discernment that goes into the whole thing, you know, uh, both on the on the applicants part, you know, sh- should I apply to the seminary or not? But, but also on, on our part, should we admit this student? And is this student someone that, you know, has the qualities that, you know, at this point we believe would be good for the ministry? Right. Right. So it's uh, yeah, that's a very interesting uh, kind of turn on things. I remember and this obviously is a huge gargantuan rabbit hole that maybe we can do sometime if we're in the mood for it. Um, but I remember having 
uh, the call documents in one hand and a what I think was a one year renewable contract <laughs> in the other hand yeah. and, and thinking one of these things is not like the other. And I remember mm-hmm. uh, asking uh, the now sainted Professor Marquardt about this. Um, I don't know. I don't remember if you were there or not, Scott, mm-hmm. um, but asking about this and thinking, how can I have a divine call, but also have a renewable contract? And And his answer was, well, let us pray that this is going to just be a felicitous inconsistency. Yeah. <laughs> Something along those lines. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, kind of the goofiness of um, uh, some of, you know, American Protestantism creeping into the Lutheran Church, I suppose. Right. And we do kind of contract some of our pastors, even though we believe in the divinity of the call. Right. Yeah, it's, it was a strange one. And that was for three years. Mm-hmm. I think. We did that for about three years. Yeah, mm-hmm. three years. And where did you go then? Well, I went to my first parish was to um, a little church outside of Pittsburgh or just in the suburbs of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, and a little church called Concordia in Brentwood. And Brentwood. Um, yeah, I was in, in Brentwood and we really absolutely loved it. I mean, it was uh, just kind of a Pittsburgh's a much underrated city. It is yeah. a very livable place. We liked it a lot. It's a great place to be. There's, you know, it's big enough that it has, you know, all the things you want in a city, but it's not overwhelming. And, um, and the congregation was very welcoming. It was a good, uh, first parish. I mean, it was a good parish all around, but it was for a new pastor. It was because they were, they were rather kind and forgiving and, 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 you know, with a new, with a newbie like me, um, and you were what thirty at that age, at that point something um, like yeah, that yeah yeah I would have minus. been I would have been around thirty years old yeah, yeah. exactly and um, yeah, me too obviously you, right right and the the previous pastor before me had passed away um, rather abruptly not not suddenly he had cancer but it took him really fast like mm. within a couple of months once the, and he'd only been there for like a year. And, um, and so they were reeling, wow. you know, with, with grief and, uh, and the previous and the pastor before him had left under you know, uncomfortable circumstances. And so, you know, they were really, um, you know, as long as I stayed alive and <laughs> I mean, right. they were, they were just happy to have a pastor and, uh, and I was very happy to have them as a first parish. Interesting. Yeah. 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 My first call call to a parish was at Messiah Lutheran Church in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Um, and, and, and it too was, a, was really, and remains to this day, uh, it's a great congregation. Um, it was a wonderful, wonderful place. I was there for 12 years. Uh, so I was there for, a, a, in my mind, at least a good long time. All of our children were born there. Um, and uh, we helped to start a school there. Uh, they went through all kinds of transitions. My predecessor um, had been the pastor there for 20 years, and he retired in the area but joined another congregation. Um, mm-hmm. And he was always uh, completely supportive and nothing but helpful. I really I, – I deeply appreciated his um, – uh, his, bo- both his insight and wisdom – and his willingness to be uh, hands off and let me screw up and make my own mistakes. Because mm-hmm. that's kind of an important part of being a new pastor. Mm-hmm. Is you got to be able to screw up and and uh, let people forgive you. Because if that doesn't 
happen, you're going to have problems uh, down the road for sure. Yeah, there's a lot of things you just have to learn by doing it and learn what not to do by making, you know, stupid mistakes. Right, right, right. How long were you in Pittsburgh? Not as long as you were in Kenosha. I was there for seven years. It seems like um, a complete number, though. I mean, yeah. know. <laughs> no, it was a, it was a good, I mean, I, uh, I, I was, I left there when I was very happy. I mean, I was very happy there. Uh, we had our problems, but, um, you know, it was, it was a good relationship on the whole. And, um, you know, there were some interesting things to do while I was in Pittsburgh. I was able to be on the radio, uh, once a week with a fellow pastor, which was a high point. It was a lot of fun. And, um, you know, good camaraderie with the other clergy in the area made some good friends that are still good friends. And, um, and just, yeah, I mean, there were a lot of things about, about that call that we liked a lot, but then I had an opportunity to, uh, go back to seminary and I did, I went back for another three years to do, uh, be the director of recruitment and admissions and did that for, for about three years. All the time you were still in Kenosha. Right, right. And then I went to another call <laughs> to a church in Elmhurst, Illinois, which is a, a western suburb of the city of Chicago. And that was actually when we were closest together right. um, and had a few opportunities to socialize. But right. you were there for a couple of years while I was still in yeah, Elmhurst. Yeah, we were – right. So we, we – nearly overlapped for about a year and a half there something something along those lines i moved here to uh rockland california in 2011 so i've been here for five and a half years something something along those lines and uh and this too is a wonderful parish and uh my my congregation is um is throwing a little party this sunday for uh uh, for the anniversary of my ordination which will be which will be a lot of fun i'm very thankful for that uh it'll be good so very nice, very nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be good. It'll be a little weird, but you know, that's all right. Um, what do you think was well, has been the highlight of of the last twenty years? I know that's an odd question, but I have been, I've been retrospecting on this too, and uh, mm-hmm. so I'd just be interested in your, you know, what what do you think that you have learned that you find the most joy in? Maybe that's not the same as the highlight, but uh. well, there's a couple things that come to my mind, and 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 but nothing very creative. Um, f- for me, I suppose the highlight of pastoral ministry has been, you know, the the weekly preaching, right? The weekly preaching, the um, um, preaching to the same people, uh, people that you know whose lives you intertwine with, um, and the preparation of worship. I think is, uh, you know, as far as the pastoral, because I'm not in pastoral ministry exactly now, I'm in a little different aspect of things as a professor, right. but serving in a congregation, I, I think that the weekly preaching uh, was a highlight. And and like I mentioned, you know, sometimes you get to do some fun things like the the radio broadcast that we did. That was a, it was a radio talk show. Sure. And, uh, and, you know, that was, we got to interact with lots of different kinds of people that way, because they would call in and ask questions. And so that was kind of a, you know, so one thing that's kind of, you know, normal, every pastor does. And one thing that's a little special. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I would say I would have to put preaching and, uh, and, and teaching as kind of the, the two highlights for me. I love, I love preaching. I love, I love, um, I love being the celebrant. 
for mm-hmm. for the liturgy, celebrating the Eucharist, uh, the sacramental acts. I mean, these are really the the bread and butter of what it means to be a pastor. And so it's kind of a good thing to find joy in that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would I would say. Um, obviously, there are uh, there are downsides or or harder things too. I think I would say uh, the one piece that was the most remarkable for me to learn um, that I did not expect really was uh, as as I'm obviously you know and remember uh, 11 years ago I was uh, I was on disability for severe clinical depression and I was on disability for a year and mm-hmm. it was just an absolute mess for mm-hmm. uh, for for us as a family, for me personally, for my congregation, we, we kind of worked with a couple different pastors to help cover for me. Um, it was, it was a, an incredibly trying, stressful time for everybody. And in some respects, I would say that I'm still recovering from that. Hmm. Um, but the, in, but the remarkable thing about that is the, is the degree of, care and support I received from my congregation, from Messiah in Kenosha. And the people that really had no idea what to do or how to do this, none of them had ever really uh, kind of worked with a pastor with a mental illness before, certainly not in the same way. Um, and so there was a lot of uncertainty, but there was no real question about their commitment to my family or to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hear uh, I hear stories from time to time, as I'm sure you do, and many of our listeners do, of pastors that have these really kind of tense relationships with their congregation, and um, and I I can't imagine that I I, I can see how that is possible. Um, I am very thankful that I have not had that. In my mm-hmm. uh, the two congregations that I've served, that they have been nothing but uh, nothing but kind and supportive to me. Now, that doesn't mean we haven't had our had our disagreements and our problems and stuff. But it's the problems, the sort of problems you have with the family, where you mm-hmm. know that you have to work it out because you're still going to be family the next day. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's not been the it's not been the okay, and now we're going to get rid of you problems because because we think we can. So that right, that right. definitely was a uh, was a pretty defining thing for me, and that was kind of right about at the halfway point in terms of being uh, being a pastor about ten years ago. Yeah, like that. yeah, yeah. I um, you know I would just echo some of what you were saying there about uh, congregations that um, uh, are there for the pastor. I you know I've had you know the two congregations I've served. I felt that. Um, you know, no, no, not that we didn't have occasional disagreements right? or even little spats or squabbles or whatever, but, um, and I made my share of errors, but, uh, you know, there was a, there was a great deal of love in those congregations for their pastor. And I'm sure there's, they still are for their pastors. Sure. And, uh, so I'm, I'm thankful for that because I, like you said, I sometimes hear, um, of pastors who have m- more troubling relationships with their with their congregational leaders and 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 you know that's discouraging to hear. Yeah, it is. Um, have we ever talked about the Father Brown series of mysteries? You know, G.K. Uh, Chesterton. 
I haven't read them, but I know that you have. Yeah, yeah. I, there, but I don't think we've talked about it. Well, there's, there's, this is a, this is the story of G.K. Chesterton, you know, the Roman Catholic uh, mm -hmm. journalist from the early mid 20th century, um, wrote these series of mysteries that were sort of an interesting complement to, uh, to, the Sherlock Holmes type novels, which were sort of, I'll say, hyper modernist, hyper science. Mm -hmm. And and these and these were basically um, looking at human nature. And this this priest, this Father Brown kind of uh, solves mysteries by his knowledge of people and human behavior. And and there's a line I don't remember if it, I don't remember which story it was in one of the early stories where somebody comments and says basically, "You're a priest. I didn't think you knew anything about sin. <laughs> you know, I thought that you were right. sort of isolated and weren't aware of how bad things can be and how dark things can be." And and his answer was essentially, uh, "It's really the exact opposite. <laughs> That's what I know best." Because I'm, I, uh, I'm in people's lives all the time. I see them at their darkest. I hear their confessions. I, uh, I, I kind of experience the absolute worst of humanity, and uh, and still, uh, sort of live to tell the tale, but but then live to share the share the gospel with them. Um, and and I, I've been thinking about that since I read it. That in many respects that that does kind of sum up the the pastoral office that you kind of you see people and you get to know people at their absolute um most vulnerable at their at their darkest um hear and be a part of their fears their you know their trials their anger all of this stuff and then and then turn around and preach to the entire congregation the next Sunday after having that as kind of your backdrop for the week. Mm. Um, yeah. Right. It's really a remarkable, a remarkable thing that happens on how pastors are shaped by their people. And then in turn, how those people kind of shape the ministry in that place, how the word and sacraments are actually given out and what, what it looks like and what it, what it means. It's an interesting connection. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. for sure. Sure. Now, uh, if we're going to ask what's the most joy, we probably ought to ask ask the other side of that. What's mm. the hardest? What is the toughest thing that you found that you had to do? I have a guess, but uh, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Um, you know, are you asking like if you're not asking like a single episode of no. something you're well, whatever necessarily? You want. Yeah, just, yeah, necessarily. You know, um, well, it, you know, on the one hand, um, one of the things that for me is a bit more of a challenge are the just the administrative elements of things. Sure. Um, you know, getting things done, knowing how to you know run good meetings and and uh, get volunteer recruit volunteers and all, all those aspects. And I will say that I think I got a lot better at it over time. Right. Um, and uh, but you know that was that wasn't something that I was you know just sort of automatically right off the bat great at. I don't think. And we don't get much training in that no in seminary. no we don't we really don't no and 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 some people think that we shouldn't and i i've i think i think there should be some element of 
of that, I think it can, I think it's just necessary. These are yeah. just, they're skills the, yep. we're just talking about skills. We're not talking about church growth techniques or, or, you know, using revivalist methods or anything like that. Right. I'm just talking right. about, you know, administrative skills, um, that are helpful. Um, but then of course the, the other aspect a little more spiritually is the, um, the hard conversations, right? Pastors have to be um, in, involved in hard, and that's probably true of, of many professions. I mean, you know, lawyers, certainly lawyers and doctors have a lot of hard conversations right. too. Teachers, yep. Teachers, yeah. I, you know, many professions do this, but, you know, it's the hard conversations where you have to maybe, um, you know, speak some words of discipline to someone um, right. with, when they may not want to hear it. And uh, usually they don't. People don't usually want to hear that. Um so that would be probably one of the more more difficult things, um, and I think I got better at that too over time. It's uh, it's really easy to fall into conflict avoidance mm-hmm. in those in yeah. those sort of circumstances, and I, I certainly echo your your thoughts on both the administrative uh, parts and the hard conversations. I think the hardest thing for me, kind of week in week out, uh, is making shut in calls. Oh yeah, sure. You know, um, right, and that, right. and, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, uh, I am, uh, probably more on the introvert scale, uh, than, uh, than not, I wouldn't call myself a complete introvert, but, but those one-on-one interactions and conversations, uh, where you're having largely the same conversations over and over again, um, can be very, very taxing and mm-hmm. can be difficult to, to kind of place. And, and they're absolutely critically important. This is not something that you can just say, well, I don't like this. And so mm-hmm. I'm not going to do it. Right. You can't. This is your office. This is, this mm-hmm. is who you are is, as a pastor is to, is to care for the sick and, and the dying and those that are those that are in need and provide them with the gospel. But that is, is not something that, that has ever really kind of come naturally to me. And, uh, and I'm very thankful to have a deaconess, uh, in my current parish that is extremely, uh, helpful and understanding with me and kind of seeing to it that that gets done. It's very helpful to me to be accountable to another person on this mm, yeah. to kind of force me to stay on top of what I'm doing. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that has always been, uh, been a challenge for me. And in many respects, I don't think it's any easier now than it was 20 years ago or whatever. No, I, I, you know, I definitely f- felt the same way. I think for the same reason that I have a bit of introversion in me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, for me, the difficult part of making individual visits like that was simply getting up and there, you know, right. getting my, my act together. And there, once I was with someone, I was usually, you know, quite happy to be visiting with them. Right. Right. Um, and it, it does take a lot. I mean, emotionally, um, you know, it, it takes, you know, you know, pastors get drained emotionally and spiritually drained from, sure. from some of their work. And, so if you're not recuperating from from the things that drain you, um, it can become very very difficult. I yeah. think. Agreed. Agreed. That's uh, that's a tough one. No doubt. No doubt about it. Not impossible, but definitely, mm-hmm. definitely a tough one. Interesting. 
any other thoughts that you that you uh, have or or want to mention? Just thinking thinking over twenty years that might be of uh, interest. Oh, I I can't think of any other thing I would rather do. Yeah. Than be in the ministry, than be yeah. God's man in in a certain place. Um, you know, both as a pastor and now as a professor, um, it's different, but, um, you know, they, they both have a past, you know, this definitely has a pastoral aspect as well. And I can't think of anything that, that for me that I would rather do. I, I, you know, kind of set my eyes to, towards being a pastor when I was 16 or 17 years old. And I thought, you know, I would give it, I would see, you know, if it works out, I, you know, if I, I never said I'm going to be a pastor. I always said, you know, I'm going to attempt to be a pastor. (laughs) Right. And, um, and, and, you know, God has blessed it, I think mostly. And, um, you know, in spite of myself. Interesting. Yeah. I, I would, uh, I would certainly say that I can't see myself doing anything else. I'm mm-hmm. not sure I have any skills to do anything. Right. <laughs> um, okay. So what are you going to do with your bachelor's degree in history and two master's degrees in theology? Right. <laughs> you want fries with that? Um, right. But, uh, but I, yeah, I agree. I, there isn't anything else I would want to do. And, um, and despite the cross, which is a, um, or maybe even because of the cross, which is an ever present, piece of the pastoral office uh there is there is still great joy to be had in uh in that work speaking of joy what Mm. is bringing you joy this week pray tell anything well yeah i don't know if joy is the exact word um, (laughs) but of of interest of, of great interest to me this week is um, I don't know if you, how aware you are of the work of Marshall McLuhan. I vaguely recognize the name. But okay. That's it. Okay. Uh, Marshall McLuhan was a um, a, a media a, uh, analyst, a media critic. He was a Canadian me- media critic in the first half of the 20th century, who um, took the world by storm by his theories of the effects that media have, like electronic media have on the human mind and the human culture. Okay. He foresaw things like the internet and social networking decades before any of that was, was a reality. I mean, he's been dead since I think 1981 or something like that. So, but yeah, yeah. I mean, he, you know, he coined the term global village. Um, you know, he, that wasn't Hillary Clinton. No, no. She said uh, it takes a village. Right. Yeah. That was close. Yeah, it was pretty close. Well, anyway, so I'm going to use some of the his his writing is notoriously a kind of difficult sort of stream of consciousness. So I don't know if it's given me joy to read this stuff, but it's it's definitely in, in, enlightening. And I'm going to use some of it for a DMIN class I'm going to teach this summer at uh, CTS Fort Wayne. I'm going to teach a class called Ministering in a Digital Age. And you can't really do a doctoral level class on this subject without looking at Marshall McLuhan. So I am reading a book called The Essential McLuhan, put together by his son. And it's just excerpts of his works arranged topically to kind of help you get enter, enter, enter into his works. And um, how do you so, spell yeah. his last name? Do you know? It's, yeah, I do. It's M C L U H A N. M C L U H A N. Uh huh. McLuhan. Huh. 
Marshall McLuhan. His first name is Marshall. Marshall. And Marshall yeah, he's McLuhan. not he's not a marshal in the military or something. Gotcha. Right. Or a fire marshal or something. Uh, gotcha. Right. <laughs> exactly. And he um he coined the term the medium is the message. In mm. fact, that's the name of one of his books. Right. And uh, you know, so so you know, when you want to communicate the gospel using social media, using uh, websites, using the, um, you know, television and radio, it affects the message. It, it has an impact on the message. It's not necessarily bad or good. You just need to know that and, and, and keep in, keep into mind what, um, the medium itself is communicating. So anyway, that's what I'm up to. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Well, my, uh, my joy bringer or interest bringer is a book that a, uh, a colleague of mine, a fellow pastor in the area, uh, kind of pointed out to us. We were uh, we were studying Matthew and I don't even remember, frankly, how the how this book came up. But uh, once he said it, I knew that I had to I knew I had to get a hold of it. The title of it is Route 66 A.D. on the Trail of Ancient Roman Tourists. And essentially what this book is about is how Rome, with its incredible industry and work of building the infrastructure of the empire, particularly the roads, uh, how they are the ones that really created tourism and the concept of going someplace just in order to see it. Uh, and it's a and so it he goes back and does all kinds of all kinds of research on what this what this meant, what this looked like in the first, you know, two, three, four centuries uh, A.D. and kind of how this changed people's worldview, how this changed their own uh, their own self-understanding and how they just how they looked at the world around them to recognize, you know, you didn't actually have to simply uh read about the uh read about the pyramids you could go there and see them um uh, so yeah really interesting very uh kind of a funny book so uh definitely on the offbeat scale of things but that's the book route 66 ad on the trail of ancient roman tourists so that's what we've got anything awesome. else you have for our dear listeners my friend no, thanks for listening. Yep, indeed so. And uh, we'll see you for the next 20 years or something. We'll talk to you later. Yep. Bye.